You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Coming up today at 6 on 1A+, meet a renowned master carpenter, author of the new book, Building a Carpenter's Notes on Life and the Art of Good Work. That's today at 6 on 1A+. Now, if you want to get involved in your community or raise money for a cause, summer offers some unique opportunities. There are tons of walk-a-thons or bike, run, etc. a-thons that bring communities together for causes at the national or the local level. Our next guest says those are great opportunities to get involved and has some other advice for summertime giving as well. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you participate in one of these, maybe an annual walkathon or other community fundraising event? We want to hear about it. Did you help organize one or do a walk in the name of someone else? Do you find other ways to get involved, do charity work, or maybe volunteer in the summer? If you're with an organization that needs some volunteers, tell us about it. Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800 642 one two three four. You can also email ideas at wpr.org. Lisa Dietlin is a keynote speaker, author, and founder of the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy. Lisa, welcome back to the show. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. I love talking about giving in the summer. <laughs> now, it seems like there are these uh, local and national walks and bikes and runathons all over the place. How did this get to be such a big thing? Well, it's a great question, and you're absolutely on point. It seems like any weekend or even weekday, you could participate in a walkathon, a bikeathon, a marathon, anything that has a thon with it. It actually started in the early 1970s with the March of Dimes, the Walk for Life, the Relay Walk for Life. They were the first nonprofit organization to do that. And now we have them with almost every major national organization. Think about, you know, the walk to end Alzheimer's. Many of the local chapters do walks in their communities in the hopes of finding a cure, raising dollars for the research to find a cure for Alzheimer's. But breast cancer, Susan G. Komen, a lot of walks in the end of the summer and even into October, you know, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month thinking about how can we walk and raise money so that some of these diseases and um, uh, illnesses that afflict us can be mitigated, if not eradicated from, you know, our world. Now we could just, you know, write a check to the relevant organization, but you, Lisa, see some value in getting together people together in these walkathon type events. What is that? Well, you know, the first value is, you know, you actually come together in community and coming out of what we just went through the pandemic and now we're in an endemic. I mean, I think all of us value community so much, Rob. We we want to be with others. So the first is to realize that you would be in community. It's great um, thing to do for your health. Um, many of my friends that participate in the Chicago Marathon, you'll also do it for their health. But whether they're doing a walkathon or a bikeathon, they're feeling better about themselves. And most of them get this grab a friend or two. It might be mom, it might be dad, it might be a family event, especially if a disease affects a family. You might see sisters walking together if mom died of breast cancer, or you might see the entire family um, biking together if there was a preemie baby born um, or somebody has MS. I mean, people come together. So it's a great opportunity to celebrate not only your community in which you live, but to celebrate those girlfriends, those guy friends, those families, those sisters, those brothers, that sometimes we get so busy, we don't have that opportunity to get together. And this is um, to get together with those that you love and do a really good thing. 
Our producer, Tim Peterson, is actually doing a walk this weekend to raise money for a heart attack research, a SCAD heart attacks, that's S-C-A-D, and uh, the event is called a scadaddle, which is, a, I think, a pretty <laughs> clever way to do it. A, a lot of a lot of these groups, local and national, have actually kind of had some fun uh, pulling these things together and getting th- people involved, it seems like, Lisa. They certainly have. I did. Um, I was working with an organization, the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. And sarcoidosis is a, a, a disease of where your organ becomes inflamed and enlarged, and it can be any organ in your body. So it's not well known, but it definitely afflicts a lot of individuals. And they did a superhero theme where everybody dresses up as a superhero. Like, you know, we're going to beat this. We're superheroes. We're living with this disease. So you're absolutely right. And, you know, I love when I see um, moms and dads and aunts and uncles bringing the young children, that next generation. Rob, you and I've talked about how important it is that we teach that next generation how to give. And what better way than to get outside Get in nature, whether you're walking, biking, or running, and make it a family affair. Lisa Dietlin is with us, giving expert. We're talking about great ways to give back to our communities in the summertime. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you participate regularly in a walk-a-thon or bike-a-thon or you name it? What brought you out there to do it? Do you get together with family to do it or bring kids along? Are there special Father's Day philanthropy type things you like to do? Are you volunteering this summer or do you need volunteers? Call in now at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Lisa, Father's Day uh, just around the corner on Sunday. I'm a dad. Father's Day gifts, not notoriously you know, awesome. Uh, You suggest uh, finding ways to say, hey, what does dad care about? Let's do something along those lines. I certainly do. You know, I think our dads are the unsung heroes of philanthropy and making charitable donations and volunteering. Think about it. Our dads usually are our first little league coaches or soccer coaches. And we certainly have a lot of dads and uncles and grandpas who, you know, get involved with Boy Scouts um, or Cub Scouts and what have you. And we never think about our dads in terms of philanthropy. My research shows that everybody thinks mom taught them about philanthropy, but you know, we have some pretty famous people that have done amazing things, some male, male figures um, in the philanthropic realm. So I think why not celebrate dad by doing something philanthropic? Perhaps you find a walk or a run or um, an opportunity to bicycle together. You know, what our parents want more than anything is to spend time with us. And how about spending time with dad and doing good for charity and maybe a cause that dad cares about? probably your dad doesn't need another pair of slippers or another tie. I mean, we're we're kind of a lot of us working remote and not going back to the office. But one thing you can give your dad that is so precious is your time. And then doubling down by saying, dad, what cause do you care about? Let's go do that together. It's Brianna Caller now at 800-642-1234. Robin is with us in Milwaukee. Robin, hi. Hi, how are you? Good. What did you want to tell us about? Oh, I just, I heard you mention the Susan G. Komen walk, and I worked on that walk. I thought I'd call in and invite everybody to come on down. Where do you do, in Milwaukee, you help organize that? Yes, yes. Um, the Milwaukee walk is this year, it, it doesn't take place till the end of September, but um, registration is open all summer long. It's September 24th, and we host it on the Summerfest grounds now. And we walk out around um, Lakeshore State Park in the morning on the Sunday, this 24th of September. I got to ask Robin, since you organize it, do you, do you actually get to do the walk yourself or are you too busy organizing? 
I've worked on it for 14 years and I've never once done the walk. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I have a question for Robin. Robin, sure. do you have, folks have a requirement for fundraising? Because a lot of times people get scared they might not be able to raise the money. Do you have a requirement or do you have suggestions for your walkers? No, we used to we used to have a registration fee when we were the race for the cure. When we changed to the More Than Pink Walk, um, I mean, our organization is all about breaking down barriers for people to access care. And I like that we now have no barriers to access the walk, too. So registration is free. Um, and then we talk to people about fundraising. So if they're interested in supporting um, local breast cancer patients or helping provide mammograms and um, tests for people or supporting uh, breast cancer research, um, we fund all of that through their donations, but there's no requirement. Um, if they raise $100, they earn an event t-shirt. Everybody gets a nifty little uh, home and wrap when they get there free, but um, fundraisers earn the shirt, but it's no registration cost, so you can come with your whole family, and it's not like you have to pay $25 for each person. It's, it's really accessible. It's a really powerful, um, very fun, very emotional uh, day. Fantastic, That's Robin. Great. Thanks for sharing that and the work you're doing there. Lisa, do you see groups making that kind of approach saying, hey, we don't want to have a barrier to people participating in this event? Absolutely. I'm so glad that Robin shared that. You know, the thing that um, keeps people away is the idea of a registration fee and or a, an amount that they have to raise. They feel like they have to raise. And you know, Rob, I'm a fundraiser. I'm not scared to ask anybody <laughs> because, well, I'm not afraid of the no. I think about what about the yes? They might say yes. You know, um, I'll ask anybody for anything. But a lot of people aren't wired that way, and there is some hesitation. So getting them involved, awareness is so important. And again, you're building community. All those walkers that Robin is supporting by in the 14 years that she's talking to and registering and smiling and showing up on that day, their lives are being changed. And they're all sharing their stories of you know survivorship and what happened in their families and this disease and how important it is for us all to come together and be aware in community. And, you know, once you get there, you know, if you're like me, you're going to be writing a check or making a donation or having it in the back of your mind, the way that you can take care of yourself so that you lessen the risk. You know, research shows, um, I was just reading some research about walking that um, a recent research out of Harvard, um, it reduces breast cancer by 14% women who walk more than three times a week. Thanks a lot for that call, Robin. We're talking to Lisa Dietland, expert on giving and volunteering. We're getting advice on great ways to make a difference in the summer months. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you go out in a walkathon yourself, a local one, a national one? Tell us about it. What kind of volunteering are you doing this summer? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Lisa Dietland from the Institute for, of Transformational Philanthropy. She's here with advice on giving and volunteering and making a difference in our communities with the summer months in mind. Still time for you to join in at 800-642-1234. Are you uh, getting ready to do some kind of a fundraising walk coming up, say? Or do you have special summertime volunteering things that you like to do? Are you with an organization and you're looking for people to get involved in your event? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. 
You can also email ideas at WPR.org. Lisa, when it comes to to hunger relief, I think it's on our minds a lot around Thanksgiving and through the December holidays, through Christmas. Uh, But in a note, you mentioned summer is actually a really important time to think about food relief. What's going on? It really is. And especially for our children. You know, many of our children um, have food accessible to them when they're in school. Think about the free and reduced lunch programs and breakfast programs. And there are even schools that everybody in the school, because of the poverty level in that community, have access to free breakfast and lunch. And then when school's out, these kids become part of the food insecure um, numbers that we count, meaning they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And we studies have been done that show that oftentimes a child that is misbehaving or having difficulties is a hungry child. So I always recommend that you think about giving a few extra dollars to your local food bank, your food pantry, the soup kitchen, whatever is going on in your community, or contact your local school and ask what they're doing. A lot of schools um, are stepping up and having summer feeding programs. There might be a reading program or other activities, and then they also feed the children. You know, we just can't think about hunger those last two months of the year. Hunger exists 365 days a year, 24-7 for a lot of individuals and especially children. You know, they say there are 9 million children any year that need access to food. And every community, anybody who's listening to this, whether they're in the urban areas of Milwaukee and Madison or the rural areas up in, you know, the upper part of um, Sheboygan and uh, the Dells of Wisconsin, they need access to food, those children. And I recommend giving cash. You know, you and I've talked about this. Well, we oftentimes want to clean out our pantry. Um, What you don't want to eat in your pantry, somebody who's hungry most likely won't want to eat it or don't know what to do with it. So cash is king um, and food banks have four to six times the buying power. So meaning if you were to go to the store and buy $10 worth of groceries because of the relationships food bank has, if you give $10, they can buy $40 of food. At a point you've made in the past, Lisa, is is you love people giving and helping out. Uh, You uh, also think there's room for advocating. Uh, Maybe it's for a policy or a local program like that summer feeding thing uh, to maybe take a step even beyond direct giving. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad you asked that, Rob. Absolutely. You know, if you are... um at all interested in solving any of these issues that we've been talking about, whether it's a disease or it's about school-aged children being hungry in the summer, you know, and you know somebody who sits on a city council, a county commission, is a legislator, don't be afraid to have the conversation. You don't have to have all the facts and figures. Start the conversation and share. You could say, hey, I was listening to Central Time and I heard that hunger is an issue for kids when they're out of school. What are we doing about it in our community? You might be that one person who's aware of it that makes a difference in your community. Perhaps nobody's thinking about it because, you you know, I grew up in northern Michigan. I know what northern Wisconsin like. You got the beautiful lake. Everybody wants to go up north, you know, with the cottages and the cabins and the, to the lake. But for a lot of kids, food being available in their homes is a 24-7 issue they're facing. And maybe you're that person in the community who happens to know your best friend from high school is on the city council and you pick up the phone, you have a cup of coffee and you and you start talking about the issue. And speaking of school, I don't want to freak out anybody just enjoying the early days of summer vacation. School will <laughs> return eventually. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of room for helping people with that back to school supply season and to start thinking ahead on that. 
There really is. You know, one of my favorite, um, you know, I'm a saver and a shopper and a couponer. And I'm always like, buy one, get one free. And, you know, like, oh my gosh, what do I have to do with all this extra stuff? And, you know, when we're putting together our kids' school backpack, how about making an extra one for the, for the child at school that doesn't have the resources at home to have everything on that list? When, when my nieces and nephews who are now in their twenties were younger, you know, they would bring home or it would be sent home with them, the list for the supplies they needed for that next year. And, you know, we all made it an effort that we combined resources or give me that list. I'll, I'll, I'll fill a backpack that you can take to the school and put in the office that some child that doesn't have those resources at home. And we learned about that during COVID when people were losing their jobs and becoming ill and losing their lives. Like we got to help each other. We're all in this to community. So it's never too early to start thinking about, you know, whatever you're putting in your kid's backpack, do you have a little bit extra, especially if there's those buy one, get one free or buy two, get one free, create that backpack. And just so the school has it. And a lot of schools, Rob, I'll go back to the food issue. They have food pantries and they have, there's the backpack program that Feeding America runs where kids that, um, they've identified that don't have food in the home. The school will put food in a backpack, kid-friendly food that the child doesn't need to use the stove or doesn't need to use a microwave. You know, you think about peanut butter, you think about tuna fish or beef. And we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Thanks to Lisa Dietland for joining us again, founder of the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy. Now, a bill passed in the state legislature this week aims to make it harder for residents to block new housing projects. As Joe Schultz reports, one barrier municipal leaders face in addressing a housing shortage is their own constituents. If you want to hear controversy at a local government meeting, stop by in a night when they're considering a proposal to build some new apartments. Meetings about developments or zoning changes in Nina, Oshkosh, and Madison within the last year sounded like this. It is also likely that he's going to put recovering drug addicts into this community that will bring significant increase in traffic and noise it will lower the quality of life for people who are already there and at a recent meeting in oshkosh one phrase came up over and over neighborhood character neighborhood character neighborhood character neighborhood character but wisconsinites need more places to live The state needs to build at least 140,000 housing units by the end of the decade just to keep pace with current demand. That's according to the Wisconsin Counties Association. Madison renter Ian Jamison says the shortage makes finding a place to live feel like a high-stakes game of musical chairs. There are not enough chairs, or in this case, houses to go around, so it gets more and more complicated and competitive. And a recent report from the city of Green Bay says the shortage has disproportionately affected marginalized groups and low-income individuals. Robin Scott is with the African American Resource Center in Green Bay. She spoke to the city council about the issue earlier this year. We serve so many clients every day at our agency, from domestic violence to sexual assault to youth programming. And the number one disparity that exists right now in our community um, is sadly housing. Renter Will Ahovich created a group in Madison to advocate for more housing because he was frustrated with conversations locally. It seemed like people were a lot of times just throwing anything at the wall, trying to block changes to their neighborhood. He says public comments at local government meetings are often skewed towards homeowners, not the people who could benefit from new projects. A lot of people who are going to live in new housing don't know that they're going to live into it until it's done. So they don't have as much motivation to show up to a meeting for a place that they might live in. 
Legislation passed this week could even the playing field for some multifamily housing projects. Under the proposal, communities couldn't veto projects that met existing zoning rules. Republican State Senator Romaine Quinn co-sponsored the legislation. He recently spoke to WPR's Central Time about the bill. Communities would be no longer be allowed to move the ball on developers when a project is trying to come in. That's what happened earlier this year when a developer abandoned an apartment project in a Milwaukee suburb that met the city's zoning code, but drew strong opposition from neighbors. Jerry DeShane is with the League of Wisconsin Municipalities. He recommends local officials have open conversations with constituents when projects become controversial. We need more housing units virtually everywhere in Wisconsin. We need to start talking to our citizens about that so that we we show people that it's not that scary. Chris Hayes is with the city of Nina. He's seen similar fear of change derail multifamily housing developments. He says a recent proposal to turn a former middle school into apartments generated familiar concerns. Crime is going to go up, traffic is going to become ridiculous, and surrounding property values are going to go down. But he says that's generally not what happens. He's looked at past multifamily projects to evaluate crime, traffic, and neighborhood property values. The insinuation that somehow things are going to get worse in each one of those categories hasn't proven to be true. The housing shortage has become such a universal issue in Wisconsin that it's forcing lawmakers and communities to move past a fear of change. They hope that makes it easier to build homes. Joe Schultz, Wisconsin Public Radio. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, the Biden administration has a new point person on censorship as some states make it easier to remove books from schools and libraries and others make it harder. Look at the latest news on book bans around the country. And on Food Friday, get advice on choosing the right skillet for the right job. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, Pat Sajak announced he'll be retiring from hosting the TV game show Wheel of Fortune. We'll talk to a TV and pop culture expert about his legacy and the evolution of game shows. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up, researchers say there's a good chance that global temperatures will rise past a key threshold in just the next few years. A Wisconsin climate scientist tells us what that means. First, inflation has raised the price of most goods and services over the years, but one commodity has remained unaffected by economic fluctuations, costs the same today as it did in 1983, vowels. Pat Sajak has been charging Wheel of Fortune contestants 250 bucks to buy a vowel for the last 40 years. But he announced this week that this upcoming season of the TV game show will be his last. His retirement marks the end of an era of longtime game show runs, completing a Mount Rushmore of hosts alongside Bob Barker, Alex Trebek, and Richard Dawson. The next generation of game show hosts like Drew Carey, Wayne Brady, and Steve Harvey aim to carry on that legacy as viewers await news of who's going to replace Sajak on Wheel and what could be next for Vanna White. We're talking about the cultural legacy of the television game show Past, Present, and Future, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. Are you now or have you ever been a fan of Wheel of Fortune? Do you watch a lot of TV game shows? Have things changed over the years since uh, watching them live maybe isn't such a thing anymore? Do you stream them ever? 
Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Robert Thompson is a professor of television and pop culture and director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. Bob, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, In the broadcast and media world, a 40-plus run of doing anything is pretty amazing. Could you look back at Pat Sajak's run on Wheel of Fortune here? Yeah, I mean, uh, and, you know, he wasn't even the first host. Chuck Willery did it for, uh, like, five, six years uh, before that. But even for game show hosts, which do have a tendency uh, to have long tenures, this was a significant uh, significant run. He starts on daytime, actually even earlier than uh, 41 years it'll be, uh, 1981, Vanna joins him in 82, and then they start their uh, primetime run the year uh, the year after that. Um, so he's he beat Bob Barker back uh, many years ago, and he's the longest running of all. What is the secret to a game show's success and longevity? Is it the game or is it the host? And maybe uh, in Vanna's case, uh, co-host. Well, I think it's a uh, complicated calculus and a number of uh, uh, different things. But we do know one thing, that games can survive their iconic uh, host's departure. Um, I remember, and this shows how far I go back, when Alex Trebek, who now we consider kind of the personification of the game Jeopardy!, um, when he first came on in the uh, early 1980s, uh, I had grown up with Jeopardy! with Art Fleming. And I resented this new interloper <laughs> in the Jeopardy uh, 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 space. And it took me a while to finally get uh, uh, get used to him. I did, of course. I thought there was no way Price is Right could go on after Bob Barker left. He had been doing that for so long. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, it was as though nothing uh, had happened. Even uh, Alex Trebek, it seemed like uh, we could never, it would be almost blasphemous to give Jeopardy uh, then to uh, someone else. And people are getting used to it. So the host is important. You can't just put anybody into that slot. And Jeopardy tried that with a few uh, that didn't work. Um, on the other hand, the games, and most of the time they are incredibly simple, uh, seem to have an appeal that is now transcended. It's gone from radio to television to streaming, and uh, some of these old, simple formula games are still working really well for an audience. Now, they've got a little while to figure out who takes over for Pat Sajak. Some have talked about Vanna White. Uh, she has filled in for Sajak as the, the main host of the show. Uh, uh, Sajak's daughter, Maggie Sajak, Ryan Seacrest. I think Whoopi Goldberg put herself out there. Uh, what should be the process, do you think, for, for replacing a long-running host like Pat Sajak? Well, I do like, and of course, there is a lot of talk about Vanna White, especially just talk among fans. Uh, and I do kind of like the idea of Vanna White becoming the host and then getting a guy to have to turn those letters for the next 41 years might be uh, kind of interesting. Um, it, you know, there's a, there's a number of ways one can do this. The, the new way is you do these auditions in front of everybody. Jeopardy did it and ended up, ended up making a bad decision, which they had to pull about a week uh, uh, into it. And that was ham-handedly done. 
But there is an advantage to having this period of audition. One, you really get a sense what what, what these people are like on a day-to-day, day-after-day basis. Uh, secondly, you get a sense of what uh, the audience likes. And thirdly, and this was especially important for with, with, with Trebek, is you get to have a little bit of time before uh, you bring new dad in to replace old dad. Um, uh, and I think that might uh, work. They were doing it, by the way, with Trevor Noah's replacement uh, on The Daily Show. Uh, they, they were into about their seventh <laughs> guest host, and then the writer's strike kicked in. So they might do something like that, or they could, apparently they've already been talking to Seacrest. Uh, it could just be that uh, they make a decision and uh, bring someone in. But as you pointed out, we've got plenty of time to uh, come up with this decision because uh, he's not leaving till the end of the 2023-24 season. Oh, and then get this, Pat Sajak for three years is going to be a consultant to the show. <laughs> What the consultant to Wheel of Fortune actually means, <laughs> I would love to know, but that's what he's going to be. Talking to Robert Thompson with Syracuse University's Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. Looking at game shows, Pat Sajak, long-running host of Wheel of Fortune, says it's going to be his last season. We're looking back on the rise, fall, rise, fall, and rise of game shows over the years. Call in at 800-642-1234, and you could win an all-expenses-paid vacation. To- oh, no, wait. Save that for the audition tape. Love to hear what you think, though, about your favorite game show. You're the game, the host, whatever of all time. If you've been a Wheel of Fortune fan, call in at 800-642-1234. Robert, I mentioned uh, game shows seem to have gone up and down in popularity. In the era of streaming TV, where do game shows sit now? Well, they've still, uh, uh, there there are game shows being put on uh, onto streaming. They're tending to be more these hybrids between game shows and reality. So courtship and competition uh, shows and that kind of thing. Uh, there is something about the old school broadcast game show that actually still works pretty well on old school broadcast television. ABC for many years now, especially during the summer, has been heavily uh, seeding their schedule to uh, game shows, many of them game shows that have been around for decades. Uh, And a lot of these game shows do go back to the radio era. So I think for, you know, regular old fashioned game shows, you can certainly stream reruns of them, but it still seems to be one of the few program types that streaming hasn't really completely taken over yet. And you mentioned, uh, Bob, the writer's strike coming up. Well, game shows are a format that don't necessarily rely on writers. Does that make them uh, maybe look like a good idea to a network executive right now? Well, of course, it it is a good idea for now because they've got to keep churning out uh, material. Uh, they do write. Uh, they do depend on writers. Somebody had to write the words that mm, came true. out of uh, Sajak's mouth. He was ad libbing some of it, but uh, you know he's got a teleprompter, and of course somebody has to write the questions. But it's a different uh, negotiating unit than the writers' strike that we're now experiences, which, which is why network TV went to so much reality and games um, back the last uh, the last time around. It it one almost forgets that this stuff does have to be written. Mm -hmm. There is a sense that if you're a good game show host, you give the illusion that you're just out there playing games with friends, like like you would play uh, parlor games. And 
uh, I think it's it's often uh, it, it the scripted nature of this stuff almost disappears in the mouth of a good game show host. We're talking to Syracuse University TV and pop culture professor Bob Thompson about game shows and the upcoming retirement of longtime Wheel of Fortune host Pat Sajak. Love to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Have you ever been a fan of TV game shows? Are you now? What is one you've particularly liked over the years? Is there one you miss? Do you have fond memories of sitting around with uh, family or friends or maybe headed to the bar to uh, play Jeopardy with uh, your fellow bar goers? Call it at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up our conversation with Bob Thompson, professor of television and pop culture at Syracuse University. With us today to look at the role TV game shows play in popular culture as Pat Sajak announced his retirement following the upcoming season of Wheel of Fortune. Still time for you to join in at 800-642-1234. What do you like or dislike about game shows? Do you still watch them in an era of TV streaming? Who would you want to see as the next host of Wheel of Fortune? Have TV game shows been a big part of your pop culture life at some point? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or you could post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We heard from James on Facebook. James writes, I'm not sure if game shows are a good fit for on-demand streaming, but despite the loss of Alex Trebek, Jeopardy is still going on strong. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit, uh, the, the way Jeopardy navigated uh, losing Alex Trebek? You touched on that a little, Bob. Is it still going strong? It is. I mean, it had a little uh, a wobble here and there, and I think that was the transitions that were uh, going on. But uh, it's still doing very, very well, usually the top-rated uh, show in syndication uh, of the week. And when I say top-rated, we should keep in mind that you know, these little game shows that have been around forever are getting Jeopardy can get 9 million uh, uh, viewers a week. Wheel of Fortune can get uh, uh, 8 million viewers a week. 60 Minutes gets more than that. Football gets more than that. And a couple of the procedural dramas uh, get more than that. But that's about it. Uh, 9 million viewers in 2023 is an enormous audience. Compare that to when uh, you know, classy shows like Mad Men were raking all their Emmys in. They were getting like two million viewers. Uh, so the, the, I guess it's a really long answer to say, yes, Jeopardy is still doing very well. And yes, they're going to replace Pat Sajak on Wheel of Fortune because that property is way too valuable to to get rid of. By and the yet, way, I love how you pause between the words wheel of and fortune. Uh, I like someone who respects their craft. I, I don't know if I could not pause between Maybe the words not. wheel of fortune. Now, the other half of James's equation there is he doesn't see it as like a streaming on demand sort of thing. Have game shows tried to make nods to make themselves streamable or excerptable on YouTube or, you know, ways to reach audiences outside of that you know live broadcast? 
they of course invite you uh, many uh, game shows to uh, uh, engage with them on the app and on all of these other places. So all of these uh, things are trying to exist in all the space. I agree that streaming, there's certain things that are great for streaming and certain things that are that are not so great. And the game show didn't seem as appropriate back when you actually had to open up a computer and, uh, uh, you know, watch on your laptop and everything with smart TVs and all of this completely integrated technology. Uh, I think pretty soon there's going to be a huge uh, portion of the population that really doesn't know the difference. And unlike sports, where you really need to watch them live or they become irrelevant. That's not so much the case with a game show. We're not, when, when we were watching all of those various people break records on Jeopardy, Ken Jennings and uh, uh, all of the rest, uh, those have been taped a long time ago. So there, there was never that sense of uh, it being immediate. Even Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, when that was breaking all those rating mm. records in primetime, uh, were had been pre-taped, so we already knew them. Um, so there isn't that sense like live sports, which is really hard to do on streaming, though that's changing and streaming is figuring it out. We had a caller at 800-642-1234 who couldn't stay on the line. Mike in Sparta says uh, it always seems like it's celebrities on game shows when he tunes in. He thought it was supposed to be about regular people. Now, there are often the celebrity editions of these, Bob, but the... The regular people, Jeopardies and Wheel of Fortunes are still the main, the flagships, right? Uh, if you consider the two big highest rated game shows, Wheel of Fortune and uh, Jeopardy, yes, they have celebrity editions, but it's mostly just uh, uh, regular people. The same is true of Price is Right, which is one of the last remaining uh, daytime shows. There are, however, a lot of programs now that are just like reality TV started out being about quote unquote real people in the real world. And pretty soon you had Ozzy Osbourne and his family and uh, uh, Jessica Simpson and on and on and on. Um, so we are seeing uh, more more celebrities in these uh, situations. And also replacement hosts tend to be now chosen from a body of already known uh, people. Uh, you had mentioned Wayne Brady. You'd mentioned uh, uh, um, uh, like Drew Carey. What's his name who took over from Prices Right? Uh, Drew Carey. Drew Carey, yeah, sorry. Uh, all those people already had an existence in uh, in uh, comes or or other places, and we're seeing a lot more of that. In the case of Jeopardy, half went to somebody who was known as a Jeopardy champion, but Mayim Bialik got the other half of that job, and she'd been not in one sitcom, but two, Blossom and Big Bang Theory. Talking to Bob Thompson from Syracuse University, professor there of television and pop culture, looking at game shows, past, present, and future, as Pat Sajak announces this will be his last season at Wheel of Fortune. You could join in with your game show questions, memories, favorites, least favorites, 800-642-1234 is the number. That's 800-642-1234. Michael joins us now in Appleton. Michael, hi. Hi, Rob. Uh, welcome back, uh, and thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to uh, – one of the previous callers mentioned celebrity versions of game shows, and then I heard Jeopardy. Uh, and so my brain went straight to you, – you already know uh, – SNL's uh, celebrity Jeopardy segments with uh, Will Ferrell playing Alex Trebek and uh, the late Norm MacDonald uh, <laughs> reoccurring as Burt Reynolds and Daryl Hammond as uh, – Sean Connery, Sean Connery after Norm left. So, I, yeah, I just wanted to 
share and give everyone who's seen him a, a, a vicarious chuckle. Michael, thanks a lot uh, for bringing that up. And, Bob, I've watched a lot of those Saturday Night Live uh, Jeopardy, Celebrity Jeopardy versions, and it does speak to the place of the game show and popular culture that they could be fodder uh, for such a long-running parody. It does. I mean, and think about today. If if all of these great shows, and we've all, all got our favorite streaming shows, which are getting all the award nominations and are so brilliant, but if you went out and asked the next thousand people on the street to, you know, name a bunch of shows, they don't share the same shows. They might be watching Walking Dead, but they're not watching Game of Thrones. They might be watching Succession, but not Insecure. Virtually everybody in that group would know what you were talking about if you said Wheel of Fortune or Jeopardy. Even if you've never watched those shows, it's very hard to exist in this country without knowing of their existence. Um, and knowing of their existence to such an extent that some people to this day, when they are asked a question, they answer it in the form of a question, even if they're not playing Jeopardy. <laughs> I still measure 30 seconds by humming that Jeopardy song in the, in the back of my head. Let's go back to our callers. Uh, Sarah is with us in Libertyville, Illinois. Sarah, hi. Well, hi there. What wow. Is... So I was casting my mind back to what I liked when I was little, and game shows were just so different then, at least there were some. And we loved to watch Password and, like, $10,000 Pyramid. And Password, especially when I was little, was just such a cool show. And you really had to think. And they had all these celebrities, and especially Lucille Ball. I remember her so well. She was really old, but she was just really funny and really good at it, and it's just a great memory of Lucille Ball. Sarah, thanks a lot for that call. I think, I can't remember if it was Password or The Pyramid, uh, where you'd have the celebrity partnered with a real person. I don't know if anybody does that anymore, Bob. Password and Pyramid. Both of them did. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the the caller was talking this this um this very warm feeling we seem to get about remembering game shows of our of our youth, and I think part of that is that game shows tended to be on in the daytime, which means that your biggest experiences of game shows as a kid were when you were in the glorious state of being home from school, <laughs> either sick, either pretending to be sick, or on vacation. So already when you were watching a game show, you were doing something that was extra special, doing something during the day uh, when you're not at school. And I think if I think back of my whole, all my television memories as a kid, the game shows are the ones that seem the most nostalgic, almost melancholy, sentimental, um, because they do have that uh, uh, that domestic glow to them. Uh, I remember Lucy on Password and Betty White on Password. Uh, I remember when Password was still black and white, and they used to <laughs> physically change partners by walking in front of the um, uh, the camera. Uh, I remember that fondly, but not as fondly as Chuck Barris on The Gong Show, who brought the game show, of course, to the age of Dada. Thanks again for that call. Bob, what are you watching for now for the future of game shows? Not just Wheel, but uh, the genre. The genre seems to have gone in two directions. Number one is this more competitive, reality-based, uh, big production value kind of uh, uh, things. Big challenges and having to go over rivers and all that kind of uh, uh, stuff. The other thing, though, that I think is most interesting and probably most enduring is absolutely old-fashioned old titles 
the same games with just new hosts. Um, it, it's ex extraordinary how the most successful of the game shows are one. I mean, ABC in the last couple of summers have been redoing To Tell the Truth. They redid the match game. Um, uh, all of these th things that were game shows of my childhood are now uh, uh, new ones. And I think it's one of those genres that really has a long, long, long shelf life. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire that debuted in this country in 1999 was in essence 21 and the $64,000 question with a little bit different furniture. Bob, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us again today. My pleasure. Thank you. That was fun. That's Robert Thompson, professor of television and pop culture and director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. He's with us today to look at the cultural legacy of television game shows as Pat Sajak announced his upcoming retirement after 40-plus years from Wheel of Fortune. You can keep sharing your thoughts on game shows over on the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org. Coming up after the news, a climate scientist explains how a likely 1.5 degree increase in global temperatures passing that threshold would impact people and the environment. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network.